Amen. How are we this morning? Your weather is way too nice for you to be that lame. I bring greetings from Phoenix, Arizona, where last week it topped 117 four times. So I have, even if you're not enjoying it, I'm enjoying it, okay? I am loving the Michigan weather. I have come for a few days of enjoying um, clouds and a little bit of rain and cooler temperatures. People calling soda pop. People using their hand as a map. This has happened to me like six times. I didn't know it was a real thing. It's a real thing here in Michigan. I am uh, really, no, really thankful to be here and uh, thrilled that I get to spend some time opening God's Word with you this week. Um, Before we do, I'd love to show you my family. Do you guys want to see my family? This is my wife, Rachel, uh, who's here in the front row. And then this is uh, Titus, the two-and-a-half-year-old tornado, who is currently wreaking havoc on your kids' ministry. I apologize in advance. Send me the bill. And then that's Jude. Uh, And he is our nine-month-old little bucket of pudge, and we love him very much. He is incredibly fat and happy, and we love him. We are, uh, we're really, really thankful to be here. I bring, like I said, greetings from Phoenix, Arizona, where I am a church planter and lead pastor at a church with a very memorable name. It's called Christ Church. And uh, we love your church, and I am very thankful to be here, and uh, thankful to have the opportunity to open God's Word. So thank you to Uh, Pastor Brian and the other elders uh, for the opportunity to come and to minister God's word to you. I don't take this responsibility lightly, and certainly this morning you're not here to hear uh, jokes from a moron on stage. You're not here to hear opinions. You are here to receive the very voice of God through the ministry of his word, and that's what we eagerly anticipate by the ministry of the Spirit will be our experience this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, please open it up to Psalm 16. That's where we're going to be together. And uh, We're in a series, uh, week two of a a little mini-series called Songs of Summer, and last week uh, Caleb brought the word from Psalm 27, and when I knew we were going to be in the Psalms, I knew Psalm 16 was where I had to go. This is one of the most precious places in all of God's word to me, has given me strength and courage on many an occasion, and I hope that the same thing will be true for you this morning. And so, please, if you've got a copy of God's word, open it up to Psalm 16. We will spend all of our time there together. Well, I thought if I could bring the room together with picture of my, pictures of my cute kids, I could divide the room by talking about Harry Potter. I love Harry Potter very much. I don't know how you feel about Harry Potter, but we serve a God of miracles, and I read Harry Potter as a kid, and I'm still a Christian. Praise God. It worked out for me. I want to share a little story from Harry Potter because it, it's very appropriate for our setting. There, if you know the story, Harry's the main character. He's got a very well-meaning but borderline incompetent best friend named Ron Weasley. And he's like the last in a whole litter of kids. And he's kind of like, he's kind of fumbling and bumbling and doesn't know what to do with himself. But one year, he finally makes the Quidditch team, which is the fictional sport in the world of Harry Potter. Harry's been the star of the team for years. And Ron finally makes it on the squad. And the day has arrived for the biggest game of the year. They're playing their heated rival, and Ron is the goalkeeper. He's a critical part of the team. And the morning comes of this big match, and he is a nervous wreck. He's a total mess. He's tripping over himself getting to breakfast. He can't handle himself. He's so scared. He's trembling, and he is worried, appropriately so, that when it gets to the time of the match, he's going to ruin everything and lose it for his team. 
Now, Harry had recently come into uh, possession of a little potion called Felix Felicis, which if you drink it, you cannot fail at anything. It's called liquid luck. And at breakfast, he slips a little bit of it into Ron's drink. Now, Ron, seeing that he received the potion, he totally turns a corner. And he goes marching out to the Quidditch pitch with his chest up and his shoulders back, brimming with confidence. And he is the hero of the game. He goes full beast mode. He saves everything. They win the match. And he gets carried out of the stadium to the cheers and the applause of the whole school. Now, Ron comes to find out just a little while later that Harry didn't actually put anything in his drink. He faked it. So it was 100% placebo effect. The only difference between Ron at breakfast and Ron in the match, the only difference between the nervous wreck and the beast mode was confidence. It was what he believed about himself and his situation. It was his perspective and his attitude that changed everything. Nothing about his circumstances, nothing about him had actually changed. Just the way he saw things changed, and it gave him confidence, and it made all the difference. Oftentimes, as a follower of Jesus, and I trust I'm not alone in this, I feel a little bit more like Ron at breakfast than Ron in the match. And I feel a little bit timid and afraid and sort of guilty and anxious about the fact that I'm not maxing out my life as a follower of Jesus and I don't serve enough and I'm not bold enough with the gospel and I don't give sacrificially enough. I don't take any risks for Jesus. It's hard to see my life pushing the kingdom of God forward. And I just wonder, like, is there more for me as a follower of Jesus? Anyone else ever feel like that or is it just me? Okay, three of you are with me for this sermon. For the three of you who need some confidence in God, for the three of you who think, man, I could max out more of my life for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the expansion of the kingdom, I believe Psalm 16 was put in God's word for this day and for us so that we could no longer be afraid of the things we are not doing and so we could no longer be lackluster and lame in our pursuit of Jesus and our building of the kingdom, but we could actually put the pedal down to the floor and max out who God has called us to be and what he has called us to do. Because David, here in Psalm 16, what we see is that he begins the psalm with this cry for help. He says, preserve me, O God. But then towards the end of the psalm, he says, I shall not be shaken. What I want to know is what happened in between those two things? What happened in between help and I am immovable? What happened was he refused to do what our culture tells us to do when we need some confidence, which is look inward. Just search deep within yourself and you will find purity and you will find character and you will find ability that will give you confidence to navigate in this world. And David just rejects that altogether as a source of his confidence. He looks away from himself and who he is and what he can do and he looks to God for his confidence. He looks at who God is and what God does and he is filled with confidence not in himself but confidence in God. And that's what you and I need this morning. We don't need to look at ourselves or our circumstances to build our confidence. We need to look at God. And that's the big idea for this morning. It's just this. I strengthen my confidence in God 
by considering the work of God. If you want more confidence as a follower of Jesus, if you want more boldness and courage and assurance to take risks and to max out your life as a follower of Jesus, Psalm 16 is gonna help give it to us. Because what it's gonna do is it's gonna give us this incredible survey from the pen of David of some of the work of God on his behalf. And as David considers the work of God, his confidence grows. And the same thing can be true for us this morning. So let's go to the word of God, to Psalm 16. I'm gonna read it out loud for us and we'll find some confidence in the same place that David did. Not in ourselves, but in the work of God. Psalm 16 and verse one. And please don't forget as we read this morning, this is the word of God for us. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I strengthen my confidence in God by considering the work of God. Now the important question for us to ask and answer as we move through this text is what work of God inspires confidence in his people? What could we see and consider that God does on our behalf, that God does for us and God does to us that would give us confidence to live for him? And that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see three aspects of God's work that will give us confidence and we'll unpack it like this. Confidence grows when I consider how, number one, if you're taking notes, God surrounds me with protection. My confidence, my assurance, and my boldness, it grows when I consider how God surrounds me with protection. Look at verse one. David cries out. He, he begins with this plea for protection from God. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So he says to God, would you guard me? I need you to keep me. I'm in the middle of a difficult and dangerous situation and I need you to protect me. Now, some of the Psalms come with circumstantial markers that help us to know what David was going through when he wrote the Psalm and we have nothing in this one. We don't know what David was going through and what was going on in his life when he wrote this Psalm, but we do know, if we know the story of David, that he, he was constantly finding himself in places of danger and difficulty. He was either getting spears thrown at him from the king that came before him or his very own son was trying to usurp his throne and end his life. He was constantly on the run in danger deprived of things that he needed. He was constantly in hard situations. And so 
it would be okay for us to assume that he finds himself in a difficult situation here because he starts out with a cry, help me, protect me, preserve me. And then he says, the reason I'm crying out to you, he says, for in you I take refuge. Now, what business does David have saying, God, you're my, you're my safe place. You're my refuge. A, a guy who is so fraught with difficulty and danger all the time, why would he say, God, you're my safe place? Well, we get a little clue here in the rest of the text because I actually believe in verses two to four, David begins to unpack some of the ways that God has already answered his prayer for preservation. He, he begins to outline some of the ways that God has already protected him. So he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he begins to outline some of the ways that God has preserved him. And he says that God has given him his authority, his community, and his boundaries. We'll take them one at a time. Look at verse two. Verse two says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You may notice there in your Bible, if you're looking at it, that those two words, Lord, look a little different because the first one's all caps, second one's not. That's because the first one is the personal name of God, that's Yahweh, and the second one is a word that means master or king. So this is David saying, I say to God, to Yahweh, you are my master, you're my king. So this is David saying, I say to God, you're in charge of me. You are the boss of me. Now, we live in a cultural moment that worships autonomy, that you are the boss of you, that you should be the master of your fate and the captain of your destiny, and no one should tell you what to do or what to say or how to live or how to act, and we just kind of like love that, that I'm the king of my life. And too often we fail to realize that when we are in charge of our own lives, we're constantly running ourselves into the ditch. Like, it is a very popular delusion that we're the best at being in charge of our existence. We're not. God is. And David knows it. So David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And then instead of saying, like kind of rolling his eyes and begrudgingly sum submitting to God as his king, he says, I have no good apart from you. What an awesome thing for David to say. He's actually saying, God, you're in charge of me, and that's where all my good is found, is you being the master and king of my life and not me. And I don't know about you, but I need a little bit more of that, a little bit more joyful relinquishing of the reins of my life and putting them into much more capable and sure and sovereign hands with God and saying, God, you're the king, you're in charge, I am not. David knows that to have a relationship with God is to live a life of submission. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've decided to, to follow Jesus, if you've decided to give your life to him and to receive the forgiveness that he offers through his life, death, and resurrection, you have chosen to step off the throne of your life and surrender that place to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we need to get really, really good at saying, God, you're in charge of me and that's good for me. That's what I need. I actually need you to rule and reign over my life. That's what David says. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. God's authority, far from being a burden to him, is a blessing to him. And then this, he protects him not only with his authority, but he protects him with his community. Look at verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
David turns his attention to the family of faithful people that God had surrounded him with. Now, David knew that walking with God means he never has to walk alone. Even when people turned on him, even when people were hunting him down and seeking to end his life, he always had people around him who were also faithful to the God that he worshiped. And he finds comfort and he finds joy and delight in those people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now you might say, how is that a measure of protection? Well, here's how. Because so many of the times that we get sideways in our Christian life, it happens in isolation from other people. It happens because the means of grace that God has given us by surrounding us with brothers and sisters in Christ who hold us up and keep us walking on the narrow path, when we isolate from those people, we are so much more liable to fall into sin patterns and to negligence and to laziness in our walk with Christ. Why? Because no one's got their eyes on us saying, what are you doing, man? Stop doing that. I love you. Get out of the ditch. Get back in the game. We're in this together. That's what God has supplied his people in the family of the faithful. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. As a follower of Jesus, you never have to walk in isolation. You get to walk arm in arm with the fellow followers of Jesus as you pursue him together. You're sitting among the excellent ones. <laughs> now, maybe you look at your neighbor and you're like, I've got a lot of words for them and excellent is not one of them. We are a messed up family, but we are a family nonetheless, okay? We hurt each other, we wound each other, we offend each other, but we're family nonetheless. The benefit and the blessing of this family of God is not predicated on your or my perfection, but on our commitment and our faithfulness to pursue Christ together. So we should be able to say, as a measure of the protection of God to us, the saints in the land are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We should walk joyfully and faithfully with our brothers and sisters and allow them to walk with us and see that as a measure of God's protection. He surrounds us with protection, not only his authority and his community, but number three, his boundaries. Look at verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips is an incredibly sobering and helpful passage. David lived in a world and in a time where false gods and pagan deities were everywhere, and he would regularly see people worshiping and sacrificing to these false gods. And he says, as a prescription of what happens to people who reject the pursuit of the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you forsake him and you run after any false God, David says, you stockpile, you heap up sorrow for yourself. Now, you might think, well, I have no like wooden statues in my house that I bow down to and sacrifice to. I don't worship pagan deities. So I'm probably like off the hook on this verse. I think I'm pretty good. And unfortunately not. Because you and I, John Calvin said, the, the human heart is like an idol factory. And that's absolutely true. You and I are in the business of pumping things out of our heart that regularly take the place of God and then receive our pursuit and our devotion and our affection. That's called worship. 
And when we chase anything over and above God himself, we are running after another God. And that's why God in his kindness lays out boundaries and he says in the first commandment to Moses, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, Titus, who I showed you a picture of, who's currently in the kids' ministry, he is wild. And I regularly have to preserve him from ending his own life by accident. If I were not around, I guarantee already he would have jumped in a pool, he would have played in traffic, he would have jammed his finger in an electrical outlet, and he would have been laughing all the way to his demise. Why? Because he doesn't know any better. What does he need? He needs boundaries. And part of my role as a parent is to constantly be looking at him and saying, no, stop, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. Don't you understand? And sometimes even physically apprehending him from running into the danger that he would otherwise joyfully embrace. Now, why do I do that? Do I do it because I'm a fun-sucking tyrant who doesn't want him to have a good life? No, I do it because I'm a loving dad and I want him to live and live a full life. And way too often, way too often, we act as if the good things that we desire are actually on the other side of what God has prohibited. And we act as if God is unkindly and cruelly withholding things that would be good for us. And God is actually saying, my boundaries for you are because I love you. It's actually because I care about you and I know what's best for you that I have forbidden some things, including running after false gods, because I know if you do it, you will heap sorrow upon your own soul. That's why God says in Jeremiah 2, why have my people forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves broken cisterns and dried up wells that will never give them water? If you and I run after another God, if we transgress the boundaries that God has given us, we heap sorrow on ourselves, and God in his grace and his mercy would spare us of that. And so he protects us with his boundaries. And he says, stay here, stay with me, stay, stay where it's good, stay with the fountain of living water. Do not run after another God. So David's declaration is, is perfect for us. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, and I will not take their name on my lips. David is, as strongly as he can, forsaking all idolatry in his life, and he's saying, I worship the one true and living God and no one and nothing else. I won't even speak their names. I want to stay so far away from them. He sees the boundaries of God as a protection for him. Now, the world is a dangerous and difficult place. And it's even more so as a follower of Jesus. The promise of the New Testament is that anyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And so there's the regular sickness and sorrow that comes to everybody as part of your human experience. And then there's the added persecution of being a genuine follower of Jesus. And the world constantly is filled with pain and confusion and difficulty. But how would you live if you knew that you were ultimately and finally protected from all of it? Not ultimately that you wouldn't experience any sickness or any sorrow, but that even as you go through those things, you are protected by God because you have his authority, you have his community, you have his boundaries. I just wonder if we actually believed we were protected by God, like what risks would we take? 
What would we do? How would we live if we actually believed that God would answer our prayers to preserve us in the midst of the difficulty? You can run hard and you can sacrifice and you can serve and you can do it without fear because God has surrounded you with protection. And if you see that, if you see the protection that God has put around you like a shield and like a strong tower, it should give you confidence to live boldly for him. That's the first way that my confidence grows in God when I consider the work of God. Here's the second way. Confidence grows when I consider how, number two, how God supplies me with provision. Not only does God surround me with protection, but God supplies me with provision. I was reminded again uh, on my trip from Arizona to Michigan that I am a chronic overpacker. Anybody else? Anybody else with me? Yeah, shout out. I, I am constantly bringing way too many clothes and all kinds of useless gadgets that I absolutely don't need where I'm going. And I'm always coming like home from trips and if I go solo, I'll come home with my suitcase and I'll open it up like on our bed to unpack and my lovely wife Rachel just always rolls her eyes at me because 90% of my clothes and my stuff is like untouched because I'm like a functional minimalist but I'm a packing maximalist. Like if I can fit it in my suitcase, I'm just stuffing it in there. And she's like, really, do you need an avocado slicer? And I'm like, you never know. You never know when the situation for some guacamole will arise and I will be ready. You just, I, I just am constantly like putting little knickknacks that I'll never need. And why? Because I'm driven by the fear. I'm driven by this fear. What if I get where I'm going and I don't have what I need? What if I arrive at my destination and I would really love to have this thing, but I just refused to pack it or I wasn't given it or I don't have it. I'm driven by the fear that I won't have what I need. And I have good news for you this morning. As a follower of Jesus, you will never get where you're going and lack what you truly need. And so much of our insecurity as followers of Jesus, it comes from this fear. Like, man, I don't think God has given me what I actually need. I don't think he has supplied me with enough. And God just will not allow his people to actually believe that in his word. Because so many places, including here, starting in verse 5, David is going to gush about the incredible provision of God. Now remember, he's probably in a difficult scenario in his life that's causing him to cry out for preservation. And yet in the midst of it, verses five through eight, he just overflows with all of the things that God has provided for him. And I wanna just walk through them really quickly. But before we do, note this, that God, David, doesn't actually talk about things that God has given him. David talks primarily in categories of God giving him himself. He doesn't look at his circumstances or the tangible things that he can hold in front of him. He talks about the provision of God primarily in terms of God giving himself. Look at this, verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He says, God, you're my first choice and I have you. You are what I need. You are what fills me up. You're my portion and my cup, and I have you. And then he says this, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. Far from believing that fate or chance or karma or destiny rules his life, he knows that the sovereign ruler of all things and the king of his existence is in command of what happens to him. He says, you hold my lot. Casting lots was a popular way to make decisions, and he says, you hold it. 
you have my lot. You are in charge. You are in command of my life. Verse six, the lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. (laughs) What's ironic about this is when he's writing, chances are he's not even in the promised land. Like David may only have like a rock for a pillow in a cave as he's hiding. And he says, the boundaries, like the lines, they have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. This is an incredible callback to the time when God apportioned, when he distributed the land by clan to his people and to the priests and to the Levites. He gave no land, but he said to them, I'm not giving you land. Your inheritance will be me. I will give you myself as your inheritance instead of a plot of land. And David is saying, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. I may, I may not be even be in the promised land at this very moment, but I have God. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. And then verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. David wasn't terrified. He wasn't perpetually confused by not knowing what to do. How often do we find ourselves paralyzed and stymied in our Christian life because it's like we feel like, man, I just lack information. If I knew more, if I had more data, if God would tell me more, I would know where to go. And David says, I bless the Lord who's been my counselor. And David had a fraction of the Bible that we have. He says, the Lord has been my counselor. I know what to do and I know where to go because God has spoken to me. And God has spoken to us too, and he wrote it down in the pages of his book. So far too often in our own insecurity, we say, I don't know what God wants me to do. And he's like, I gave you a whole book of what to do. Like this is all about who I am and how you live and how you, how you receive forgiveness of your sins by faith in Jesus Christ and how you pursue holiness and walk in obedience. That's what this is about. The Lord has been my counselor In the night also my heart instructs me. And then this, he says, I have set the Lord always before me, verse eight, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He says that the Lord is before me and the Lord is beside me. He's saying the Lord is with me. I'm not alone. I don't have to blaze my own trail. God goes in front of me and I don't have to walk down that trail alone because God is beside me. And his, his conclusion at the end of all of this, his conclusion at the end of recounting the incredible gift and provision of God through giving himself is this, I shall not be shaken. Such an awesome declaration of confidence from David. He says, even though the world around me and the ground beneath me might be shaking like crazy, I will not be moved because I have God. What if we were able to say that? What if we were able to say, even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of chaotic circumstances where I feel like I have no control, I will not be moved, not because I can control or even anticipate what's gonna happen to me, but because I know God and he is with me and he is my portion, he holds my lot, he has been my counselor. I will not be shaken in the midst of my circumstances. That's what David is able to say because he knows that God has supplied him with provision through the gift of himself. And what he's doing is he is 
he's recounting the goodness and the generosity and the kindness and the provision of God, and it's changing his perspective. It's not changing his circumstances. I, I don't actually think that David penned this psalm and then all of a sudden the trouble was gone. But way better than that, David penned this psalm and by this point he's saying, I shall not be shaken. So his circumstances aren't different, but he's different in his circumstances, which is way better. Like oftentimes you and I, we're like, God, just get me out of this really hard thing. Get me out of the difficult circumstance. And God's like, I'm trying to change you in the difficult circumstance. And I'm actually using the difficult circumstance to change you. So rather than just pluck you out of it, God wants to change your perspective while you're still in it and give you confidence that no matter what happens to you, no matter where you are, he has abundantly and over and above, way over the top, he's provided for you. Why? Because he's given you himself. If you have a body that is racked with sickness and you have a bank account that is empty and you have broken relationships and you have all kinds of confusion in your life and things are hard, but you have God, you have more than you could ever need. And the, the reverse, the converse is also true. If you have a healthy body and a full bank account and great relationships and your life is devoid of the creator of the universe, you have nothing. Give it a hundred years and all that stuff will be dust. And what will you have then? To have God the way he provides himself to us is to have everything we need. And David knows it, so he's confident in God. He says, God, you've given me yourself. You've supplied me with your provision. When was the last time that you stopped to recount the ridiculous generosity of God to you? Sometimes we get so focused on our difficulty and our circumstances that we forget to lift up our eyes and remember that God has abundantly provided for us. That God has given us another breath in our lungs this morning. That God has allowed the shower of his common grace to fall upon us. That the sun rose this morning, that we're alive this morning, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, that we get to know God, that even this morning we find ourselves in a Bible-preaching, gospel-believing, faithful local church under the sound of the preaching of God's word in the fellowship of God's people. And then over and above all of that, God has given us his very own son. So if you, like me as a chronic overpacker, if you ever fear deprivation, that you're not gonna have what you need, you need to go, to back, you need to go back to Romans 8 and read what Paul says there. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God has emptied the most precious gift that heaven has to offer, which is his very own son, what in the world do you think he's gonna withhold from you and me? What will he hold back if he's already gone all the way in sending his son, his son who lived and died and rose again so that we could be rescued from sin and adopted into his family? He will with him graciously give us all things. He has surrounded us with protection, and he has supplied us with provision. Those are the first two ways we get confidence in God. And here's the third. The third aspect of the work of God that gives us confidence, it's this. Confidence grows when I consider how, number three, how God satisfies me with presence. 
how God satisfies me with presence. David begins verse 9 with this exuberant, comprehensive statement of complete satisfaction. Listen to it, verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This is so awesome. He's just like, he can't think of any more words to say to convince you that he is fully satisfied, that he is so good. Like, just imagine, I know sometimes we like read the Bible and we're like, yeah, it's like Bible. It sounds like the Bible. It sounds, you know, very, it's like high language. But imagine how you would respond if you ran into somebody in the hallway this morning and you said, hey, how are you? And they said, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You'd be like, wow, what breakfast did you eat this morning and can I have some? <laughs> he, David is just gushing about how satisfied he is. And why is he doing that? Because he knows that even in the midst of his suffering and his difficulty, he is with God. So he says, my flesh dwells secure. My whole being rejoices. My heart is glad. He is fully and completely satisfied and he doesn't need another thing. It's like a if you've ever been to a buffet, which I hope you have, because it's a way to uh, it's a way to consume, you know, copious amounts of very bad food for moderate amounts of money. It's like and they always trick me into, into going there and to eating way too much. And so when you go to a buffet and you like fill yourself up to the brim and then you're walking out the door, imagine you're like walking out of a buffet place, you've just stuffed yourself and there's a dude out there with like Costco samples. And he's like, hey man, you want some pita chips and hummus? You'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I just ate to the brim. I satisfied myself completely, like to the full. I am good to go. I don't need anything else. And that's what David is saying. He's saying he is so full in the presence of God that he doesn't need anything else to be added to him for him to be satisfied. This is so awesome. David has all that he needs in the presence of God. David is gushing about the overflowing fullness that comes from experiencing what you were made for, which is relationship with your creator. He's with him. He's with him in the midst of the danger. He's with him in the cave. He knows him. He's his portion and his cup. He's with him and he is satisfied. Now, David is going to start verse 10 by saying for, which is, which is to say this is the reason that he's so satisfied in God. It's one of the reasons. And here's what he says. He says that the worst thing that life can throw at him can't separate him from the best thing he has, which is God. Look at how he says it in verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is literally saying, even if I die, you won't leave me. That's what he says to God. He says, even if all this difficulty leads me to death, even if the people who are hunting for my life, if they are successful and they chase me down and they kill me, even then I will not be separated from the most precious thing I have, which is you, God. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying, even if I pass through death, it will not be separation from you. It will actually be unity with you. 
he, he knew the lyric to the song that we sing, that death is just a doorway into resurrection life. That to pass through death was not to be separated from God, but to be ushered into the presence of God. David knew what we can know now. He knew dimly what we can see in full, that for those of us who belong to Jesus Christ, who is the resurrected king, that our future ultimately and finally is not decomposition in a grave. It is everlasting life in the presence of our creator. And that should give us confidence. We should be able to see and believe that our future is resurrection life and unity with God because of it. Now, if you look at these verses and you think to yourself, this is just like the resurrection, this is just like Jesus, it's entirely appropriate for you to think that. Because about a thousand years later, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls, people start speaking in languages that they've never learned so people can hear the glories of the gospel to the ends of the known world. The apostle Peter, he stands up to testify to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he uses the last four verses of Psalm 16 as his primary text, as one of his cornerstone texts that he preaches from. It's this. And he actually tells us on that day that when David wrote this psalm, he was looking forward with prophetic vision to see the descendant that God promised would sit on his throne and would be the true and ultimate fulfillment of the one who would not be abandoned in death and whose body would not see corruption in resurrection power. This is so, this is so awesome. Because you and I, who have the great enemy of death bearing over us because of our sin, our sin has separated us from our creator. Our own willful rebellion against him has earned us the wage of death. And if we are not united to the source of all life, that death will be surely eternal as we receive the rightful wrath and condemnation that we have earned for our sin. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ by sending him to live a perfect life, a spotless track record of obedience when you and I had failed at every point and then to go to the cross as a substitute and to die in the place of broken rebels like you and me so that his shed blood would cover the payment for our sins and then three days later to rise from the dead in victorious resurrection power to conquer Satan and sin and death and hell forever so all who trust in him by faith, all who turn away from their sin and give up all their confidence in who they are and what they can do and put all their hope and their trust in him, all of them would share in that resurrection life, would no longer be dominated by death, but would be made alive now and forever and would experience the reality of John chapter 11 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And anyone who believes in me will never die. That's the privilege that you and I have to share in the resurrection power of Jesus if we trust him by faith. And here's what this means. Think about the confidence that you could live with as a follower of Jesus if you believed that not even death could take away the most precious thing in your life. A lot of times the reason we fear death is because we think it's gonna take something from us. Well, I haven't lived the full life I want. I haven't accomplished the goals that I have. What about my things? What about the people around me? And David just says, I know 
that you will not abandon me even in death. I know that I will be with you. And for those of us who belong to Jesus, our greatest hope and our ultimate joy is not in this life. The very reason that Jesus was sent to live and to die and to rise from the grave was so that you and I, who were separated from God, could be reconciled to God and brought into his presence. If you remain in your sins, if you remain separated from God, you will not be in his presence. But if you trust him, if you know Jesus Christ, the resurrected king, then God will bring you into his presence and verse 11 will be your experience now and then in an ultimate sense forever. Look at verse 11. This has got to be one of the best verses in the whole Bible. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The reason that Jesus lived, died, and rose again was to bring God's people into his presence so we could experience this, so that he could make known to us the path of life and we could experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his presence. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you know him, if you belong to him, then no matter how bumpy the road is that you travel right now, the road leads you to the promise of heaven and the presence of God where one day you will see your Savior face to face and every tear will be wiped away and all sickness and sadness and death will be removed and you will be with him forever. So what, what would we come up against in our life that would remove our confidence if that is true for us? if verse 11 is our experience now and our ultimate reality in heaven. This is the promise of God that he satisfies us with his presence. We, we don't need to keep looking for anyone or anything else, anywhere else. God has given us himself and satisfied us with his presence. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't go running to other things. Don't keep running on the treadmill searching for satisfaction in lesser things. Find it in God. Seek his face. Long for his presence. And if you find within yourself just deadness and no appetite for the presence of God, I would just beg you to try to remove inputs from your life. The things that are just constantly flooding you with different desires and different pursuits, just, just rid yourself of them and go to the quiet place. Sit alone with God. Open his word. Speak to him in prayer. Repent before him and see if he doesn't open the floodgates of his mercy and his presence and his grace to meet you right there and to satisfy you fully so that your experience now, as you live in the fullness of life that he provides, would be a preview of heaven when you will be in his presence forever. And then leave the quiet place to live your life, to go where you go and to serve where you serve and to be who you are, to work at your workplace and to live on your street and to raise your family and to relate to your friends, but to do it not from a place of longing for satisfaction, but having satisfaction and being filled up and living for Christ. Live with confidence because you know you have everything you need. I was thinking about this sermon and it made me think of 
Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Maybe you know that name. They're really famous missionaries. In 1956, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot moved their family to Ecuador. And one summer day in 1956, Jim got on a bush plane and he flew it out into the jungles of Ecuador because he had made contact with a tribe out there from the air several times. And him and four of his friends, they went out and they landed the plane nearby because they wanted to go and share the good news and the name of Jesus Christ with this tribe. They landed the plane, they prayed, they sang a hymn, and they walked out. And in their first meeting with the tribe, they speared Jim Elliott and all four of his friends to death. They gave up their lives on the mission of Jesus Christ. Jim's widow, Elizabeth, she committed the rest of her life to ministering to those very same people who killed her husband. She spent two years living among them and sharing the gospel with them, and she got to see the very men who killed her husband come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they were friends for the rest of their lives. Now, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, their example has inspired countless thousands of people to with boldness and courage at great risk to themselves to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And I just think about people like that and I think like, God, you must have given Jim and Elizabeth something you didn't give me. Like there's some kind of like Christian superhero, right? Wrong. They're not. You know the difference between Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and you and me? They were confident in God. They actually believed that they were fully and finally protected by him, that they had been provided with everything that they needed and they were satisfied in his presence. They knew that even if they gave their lives in service to Jesus Christ, that it would be worth it because they would see him face to face. And my longing and my prayer for you as a church family, what do I know? I'm a visitor, I'm, I'm leaving tonight. But my hope for this church family is that you would be marked by such a resolute confidence, not in yourself, but in God, so that as you go out into this community, you live with boldness, and you sacrifice, and you serve, and you give, so that the name of Jesus Christ would be made famous in Muskegon County, so that the world who is watching would know that Jesus Christ is King, and he lives in his people, and he has sent his Holy Spirit so that we can honor and and glorify him and serve in his name. I pray that that would be true for you. So may God be honored through our boldness and our confidence that's not in us, but it's in him, in who he is and what he can do. And may the fruit of that confidence be more glory for his name. I trust that God can do it, and I believe even now, through the ministry of his spirit, he's doing it in some of your hearts. He's bolstering you. He's strengthening you with his confidence. That's the ministry of his spirit and the power of his word, so he deserves all the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you love us so much. You don't leave us to guess or wonder who you are, but you speak to us in your word. Thank you that in a world that fills us with so much uncertainty and fear, you, in your protection, in your provision, and in your presence, you give us all kinds of reason for confidence. God, I pray you would work in our hearts right now to help us to give up, to abandon our confidence in anything else, and to put our confidence in who you are and what you do 
God, help us to trust you. Help us to believe your promises and to believe that every single one of them is yes and amen in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And then help us to live with boldness and with assurance on your mission for your glory in the power of your spirit and the name of your son, the name of Jesus, the name in which we pray this morning. Amen.